Staging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. For walking in the snow, compaction, quite a nice fan moment, got all kinds of beads and balls and brushes. Great. So uh, welcome again to another episode of Staging Sound. I'm delighted to have uh, today with me two artists and scholars who both produce and teach and analyze sound-led work. They are Julie Rose Bauer and Jaron Schildkrot. Now, Julie is a sound artist, designer and researcher working with Foley sound effects and with ASMR performance. Uh, what she does is often la labeled sound-led performance, but she thinks of it as theater, she's told us. So we'll, we'll explore that connection later on. Uh, her work is about the body, is about feelings and sensations via sensory experiences at a first-person scale. She explores the materiality of sound and sound making across theater, dance, gallery, site-specific and online spaces. Recent projects include sound design for a dance film called Feeling Things, an installation called Meridians Meet for the London Museum of Design and an immersive storytelling show called Foley Explosion. She's in the final stages of her practice-based PhD in the Gender Politics of Sound in the Department of Drama at Queen Mary University of London. Yaron is a, an academic director, dramaturg. You all have sort of these many titles. I have to list all those <laughs> many, many accolades, but I'm happy to. So dramaturg, lighting designer, uh, and, and all around theater maker. His PhD from the University of Surrey was uh, about compositions of uncertainty in theater in the dark. And part of his research was around the dramaturgical and aesthetic significance of sound in relation to disorientation and conviviality. He is now a lecturer of sonography and design-led performance at the School of Performance and Cultural Industries at Leeds University. He also co-authored a chapter around the use of voice and glitches in sound-led theatre with Lynn Kendrick, who you've heard in uh, the podcast in previous episodes before. He has worked on companies such as Dead Center or Rimini Protocol and has produced and performed his own creative work, some of which with his company Fire and Foul with titles such as Certain Ways or Safe Word. Uh, I think uh, at least of one, of one of those two, uh, two shows we will talk about more in detail a bit later. So welcome and, and really uh, thank you for <clears throat> taking the time and, and joining me today here. Perhaps we can kick off uh, if you can both tell me a little bit about sort of your your influences. How did you how did you end up in in that area of research in that area of practice with the particular interests you've you've developed? Julie, do you want to do you want to start? Yes, of course. Thank you so much, David, for having me on. Um, as you said, I'm a sound artist and researcher, so I combine practice um, in the creative industries with research in an academic and scholarly sense. Um, so I kind of have to tread between those things when I tell you about how I came to this. And um, it's actually the case that my um, initial undergraduate degree was in languages and literature. My postgraduate was at the Lecoq School of Theatre doing movement, devising and improvisation. And I've drawn together these um, strands of practice in my PhD research where I am focused on sound, 
the meanings of sounds, the feelings of sounds, and sounds specifically as a byproduct of movement. So um, it's very much um, focused on direct experience of sound, sonic production and reception. And that is where I came to being interested first in Foley sound effects, cinematic sound effects, which are used um, in order to create a sense of um, body in space and a connection with remote bodies on screens through this first person interaction with materials, environments, props and objects. Um, and then I kind of transferred that skill set into um, the world of ASMR, which has a very similar palette of sound and a very similar method of producing um, autonomous sensory meridian response triggering videos and sounds. Um, it's an online relaxation culture. And curiously, in, in film and in theatre, we don't often think of the role of sound as being around relaxation or even pleasure, actually. Um, it's true, yeah. It's often, you know, the, the accus maître, the sound that you don't know why it's there, um, is the one that's used to provoke drama. But when you have a direct experience of sound, when something actually is happening and you actually und like understand that the origin of the sound is present in the space and, and is happening on the body of a person who is there, what you have is a, a situation where th there's something profoundly safe and secure feeling about that. So I'm very interested in, in these um, aspects of experience of sound. And uh, I guess it's important to say that I've always made sound in the sense of being um, a maker. I, I've always played in bands. I've always um, recorded sounds. I've always um, been interested in experimental sonic cultures. Um, so this is something which I bring to bear on my current practice, which is to say, you know, it's proudly experimental. It's very much to do with having an experience myself at the same time as creating experiences for other people. It wouldn't, I don't think, be recognised as theatrical in the conventional sense necessarily. However, I am a theatre artist. And so, uh, yeah, it's an exciting moment to explore the where the physical and the digital can cross-pollinate and, and how sound can be a bridge across remote and extremely proximate or even interior experiences. But it's really interesting how you say that, that or it seems that your work really is a confluence of so many different strands of, you know, sound, as you said, sound making, music making, but also theatre, but also film with, you know, Foley being a profound filmic technique to begin with, but quite a, you know, but it actually sort of is a, is an afterthought to the, to the noisemaker, the, the sort of the, what are they called? Um, uh, I'll find that that notion. Adrian Curtin, who's also been on this podcast, has written a, a, an article on Apollinaire. Um, I'll, I'll look it up anyway. And it's about the is it noises off? Are you think talking about noises? Exactly. And and uh, and and then there's a whole internet culture that you also you know engage with. Uh, and 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 each medium, I guess, and maybe we'll pick this up in a minute, uh, a bit more in, in depth. Each medium has its own sort of. Um, cultural expectations or uh, um, habits of, of using sound or of engaging with sound. Um, but I'll, I want to come to Yaron first and, and, and ask him the same question about uh, stepping stones, influences, um, role models almost maybe for his research uh, and his, his practice uh, to do with yeah, design and spaces and light and sound and darkness in particular as well. Yeah, uh, th thanks David. I think the, the moment that I 
seem to remember is uh, seeing uh, Working Progress of Fiction by Glenith and David Rosen, uh, David Rosen, it's you, David Rosenberg. When I studied for my master's at uh, Central School of Speech and Drama in London, it was a work in progress for a piece in the dark that they've uh, they've done following uh, Ring. And a few minutes after the show starts, we are being immersed in complete darkness. And I think that was kind of a foundational moment for me, not experiencing something like that before, except for in more educational setting like uh, Dialogue in the Dark. Uh, or dining in the dark, but using kind of the the performative element of it and thinking about dramaturgically how you set settle people, how you make them feel comfortable or uncomfortable. And I think I had the feeling of the person sitting next to me being pulled away and the distance between me and the person uh, next to me kind of becoming really uh, much larger during the piece. And I think it was a, it was a aha moment of this is why we still do live theatre sort of thing what what is the what is the reason for us to be together in a space when a lot of the time in tv and films everything could be kind of replicated much better so why do we still need to be here together and i think darkness was a, a good key for why are we still making art today what are some of the kind of sensory and affective possibilities of of sound and darkness and light to slightly question what we see what we hear what we think we see what we think we can hear and that uh, sort of led to kind of a deeper engagement with sound, darkness, and, and consequently kind of lighting and, and low light. I love that you're a lighting designer who makes work in the dark, Yaren. Yeah. It's a, lo- a well, lovely paradox. <laughs> yeah, and then te- technical rehearsals are always uh, a lovely bit of, can we make it really low and people saying, and technicians saying, oh, no one's really going to see that. Uh, yes, that's the point. <sighs> Very good. It's like being a composer who composes silences, you know, sort of. Uh, Absolutely which, like that, though. Absolutely. Has, has been done, as we all know. Fantastic. So maybe can we sort of come back to the question of sort of, and I know that's going to be a complicated one, but if if you could say what role music and sound play in your work, you know, obviously in, in, in much of theatre, they are, you know, an illustration, they are an extension, they are sort of a flavoring, you know, around something else in some ways. And they are, uh, as the name goes, incidental, you know, as we call uh, theater music, sometimes incidental music or used to to call it that. Um, now, it seems in both your cases, it the, the sound and music have a much more uh, much more prominent and much more important role. In fact, it's almost the other way around, perhaps, you know, the sound is at the, at the center, but perhaps you can unpick a bit how, how you situate it or, or whether that maybe changes also from piece to piece. And it's always important, but it always has a different kind of function or a different kind of uh, presence. I don't know if that's too vague a question, but, uh, maybe I don't think so. I think that the reframing of, Um, a practice to center something which is normally at the fringes is a classic feminist maneuver actually Um, because it alters the quality of attention and it utterly alters the experience so when for example um, a a maker like Katie Mitchell puts a Foley artist on stage and we, we find ourselves suddenly interrogating and, and the camera crew as well she does an entire staged cinema and um, strand of work we find ourselves seeing the spectacle of how the thing is being made at the same time as experiencing the fictional world of the film 
Um, and we start to understand the theatre of the senses. We start to understand um, the agency that we have as audience members in the creation of our experiences. This is listening as a creative act, attending to theatre as being a stretching, which is we haven't referred to, like this idea of the gap between you and the person next to you growing. Um, there's an uncanny quality to what can happen when you simply shift your attention. And I think that this is why sound is such a crucial tool for understanding theatrical attention and a crucial tool for understanding how in such a noisy world, in a digital world, in a technologized and mediatized world, we are able to cope with the multiplicity of stimuli that are, are available to us. So the stripping away of extraneous elements, this kind of almost straight edge approach that I have taken to saying, okay, but what's happening right now? And what happens when you listen to what you're doing as you're doing it? There's something really um, obviously in common with practices such as meditation, um, but also um, incredibly freeing because it takes off a huge amount of labor. <laughs> if you're if you're able to just concentrate on what's happening in the now and if you're able to actually interrogate a material a moment and notice how it's making you feel this is something which is very much not how illusion tends to work the misdirections and so on but understanding the ways in which we're misdirected constantly through sensory stimuli and through um and through distraction techniques is I think really radical and really political. If I can just pick up on that, there's a there's a good coinage by uh, the late um, German theatre scholar Hans Thies Lehmann, whose post-dramatic theatre we've all had on our bedside tables for a little while. Um, <laughs> and uh, he talks about the politics of perception. I think that's precisely what you're describing. I think he, he means it in a slightly wider way, but I, I, I completely appreciate that you're, you're, you're picking up particularly on the feminist aspect of this. Um, I've heard, I've, I've read other scholars who talk about queer listening or queer sounding, et cetera, et cetera, which is perhaps an extension or a, another, another aspect, another layer. But I think that whole notion that the ways we sound, the ways we listen are deeply gendered. They're deeply to do with certain privileges, with habits, with uh, where we are situated in society, et cetera. All those kind of things are, are implied or are sort of exercised on a daily basis uh, in, you know, even how the, the car door sounds that we slam, you know, whether it's a cheap car or a expensive car, you can hear that. And uh, there goes a lot of sound design in cars, actually, you know, they don't sound like that naturally. They, they are, they're made to sound a particular way um, in order to press other people, impress other people, etc. So yeah, I think same pretty, engine, different yeah. sound design. So you can have a sports market or you can have a family market. Yes, precisely. And but it's bullshit, you know, like it's not real. <laughs> like, no. There's something about there's a distract, there's an illusion at, at play, which um, I think that unpicking it actually is um, is some, is is key to sanity and to not feeling very overwhelmed and, and duped on a on a daily basis. Absolutely, and the other thing that I think um, another artist called Heiner Goebbels, uh, who you you will probably have come across, absolutely, has, I think pointed out a number of times is that in daily life sounds are or all of our perception is very often made redundant. So, you know, there's a there's a light blinking and there's a, a, a beeping sound and there's a thing, all of which say the same thing, which is, I don't know, 
your food is ready in the microwave or your phone is ringing or whatever. It's just a redundancy of, you know, you, you, you're being told the same thing on three different levels. And what he's always interested in, and I think Foley is a particularly good example of that, is what happens if there's a disjoint or there's a, you know, I can see someone holding that proverbial crisp package in their hands, but I can hear a fire crackling or something. Do you know what is it? So, so I have two different things or I can, I don't know what, you know, I'm just picking up Katie Mitchell examples here. So, you know, um, but, but that's a, that's a really interesting moment because it, as you said, it, in, it makes us interrogate what we, what we actually perceive and what is true and what is real and what is not real, etc. I think there's a, there's a sense of, there's a sense of people wanting to fix well, obviously, what you said about in terms of politics of perception, people trying to fix fix things and sort of applying the accuracy of vision to sound. Things are as they are because of how they seem. Uh, things are what they are because of how we think they sound. There's something, I suppose there's something a bit ableist in terms of th saying it's a bit redundant because we all make sense of stuff slightly differently and so there's that the, the, there's an interesting politics here to open and i think that's the type of motivation in terms of how sound operates in that work is, is that it opens the possibility to question certain modes of perception how do we make sense of certain things how is our world around us structured by certain elements how things have been decoded now to mean other things like using older i think ross brown talks about this how things have been kind of co-opted uh, certain noises to mean certain things now of the classic uh, noise of something has now been adopted to something else like the the flash of a camera now in in an iphone taking a picture and we associate that with that and it's interesting in terms of the power of sound to reconstruct analog experiences yeah and and certain perception it kind of in in general i think what i try to do in my obviously in darkness with with the it's not a removal of visual references but it, it's seeing darkness sound becomes a prominent tool to reconstruct space and so therefore these ideas of distance and proximity that julie rose has mentioned is very much part of that as well of how our spaces become bigger and smaller of how certain objects things people become closer or or more distant to us or make sense to us differently there's a lot of similar politics both in kind of revealing the illusion or revealing the illusion through darkness or inserting that doubt in darkness of whether it is the thing actually here is it a recording is it live what am i listening to that sort of thing and memory and familiarity are so important to situating dramatic situations the fact that we all know what it's like I mean, obviously people are growing up now who've never taken um, a photograph with a camera that goes click. However, um, the sound of the camera remains important for situating the experience of taking a photograph. It's a useful cue. It, it supports our experience in ways which aren't very well understood. And so um, the pleasures of touching sound and of sound as a way of touching us and situating us in our experiences is very profound. And that's something that roots my work and makes it very easy to move across different media, putting the different hats on of all the different types of things that I do, because there's, um, there's something which is very eruptive and plain, like 
that I can know what something feels like to someone else because I have had perhaps a similar experience, but through the sound, I understand what the touch of that experience is like for them. And there's something very curious around um, memory and um, subjectivity there. Um, and Sh Michelle Shion writes about this absolutely brilliantly um, in an essay in Audiovisuology 2, in which he talks about the specific pleasures of what he calls ergo audition. And ergo audition is simply that, um, that paying attention to a thing as you're doing it and taking the point of audition to be one's own. So situating your listening. And so it's not necessarily just to do with sound and it's not necessarily just to do with image. It's very specifically to do with what those things feel like in the moment to you. And amazingly, this term ergo audition did not, has not caught on. <laughs> no one knows what it means, but the pleasure that he describes in it is uncannily similar to ASMR. And actually, I think that he is talking about ASMR um, he's describing the same order of experience. And he wrote this essay in the same year, 2011, that ASMR was named. So there was something going on in 2011 around this digital turn where we, we the senses and sound in particular took, we, we started to require more vocabulary around it. So that I think is really worth interrogating. I think a useful a useful point here as well is the is the repositioning in your own body so uh, uh, what i said before is very much kind of externally and going beyond oneself or extending one the space around us but the other thing is very much uh, the sensation in your body how does it feel to be how does it feel to be touched by sound the the different qualities that that you've just talked about in terms of uh, textures and how we engage with them but there's something about that kind of that rerouting and embedding us in our own bodies that sound is also a very useful tool in in practical work and in remote distal um isolated um work where we're creating as we are right in this moment collective um moments of of communion moments of meeting um, where we're completely far away from one another and so there's um, suddenly a need for that directness. There's a need for touch and there's a need for um, proximity because of the, the ways that we work are so, um, are, are so lacking in those aspects. So I think that ASMR coming out in the COVID times as being a very important um, style of communication and, and being actually a sensation which, which needed to be spoken about more is important and it is now cross-pollinating back into physical spaces. You know, the Design Museum show was one example. My ASMR at the Museum series is, um, it came out at exactly that time, but it kind of took off because we couldn't go to museums. And the idea had been that um, we, the, the first person touch of curators and museum experts, conservators, librarians, and so on would communicate what it was like to touch unique, precious objects, which you're not allowed to touch in the etiquettes of museums usually. But to give a sense of those histories of use, like what was it like to wear that dress? What was it like to hold that hat? What was it like to um, turn the pages of a medieval antiphonary? Like it's, um, it's erupting these the past, the, it's really interesting to think about things which are obsolete and from the past being awoken through sound and touch 
that there is something really exciting and virtual about that in itself. Sound is, is, is its relationship to the virtual and bridging back to things which feel very normal, real, um, accessible. I think access is, is a really important point here. Yaron, can you also give maybe an, an example from your work where what you've just talked about kind of manifests itself, just a, a scene, a moment, uh, something that kind of um, articulates those those notions of bringing, well, resituating yourself in your body and realigning or refocusing your listening, etc. How does that happen in shows? I'll give an example from Safe Word. So Safe Word is a work that I've that I've done with Fine Val and started from at a time when it was a, a big trend of doing theatre in the dark in in London predominantly. There was a sense of making audiences feel comfortable and at ease in darkness, and I think we started making that work and from the slightly rebellious uh, perspective of what happens if you don't. How how can we shift different perspectives in darkness rather than simply through disorientation and the other thing is that it it started to respond to that almost now cliche of you can't close off your ears you can close your eyes but you can't cl shut off your ears so what happens and i think that that idea of safewood was trying to play with with voyeurism through sound and what does it mean to be a voyeur when you can't really look look away or turn turn your sound off or s turn your sound away Is there a good word for, because voyeur comes from seeing, of course, uh, is there yeah. a good word for the same things or an eavesdropper or how? It's got to be eavesdropping. It? I think that is the correlative yeah. in sound. But one of my yeah, theater yeah. teachers said to me something very poetic, which is the eyelid is the first curtain. But, you know, now we have noise cancelling headphones, but they aren't, those aren't built in. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I always, I always take slight issue. I mean, yes, we have eyelids, but we also have fingers, and we can put them in our ears. So, which everyone it doesn't does when work, it gets though, does it? Well, <laughs> you know, no, it's not. Well, the, the eyelids let through a lot of light as well. So, if you, you know, I, it's never fully silent, and it's never, it's never fully silent, and it's never fully dark. But I think that part of that show used different kind of frequencies to root people back in their bodies, and there was something about referring to the actual situations that we're in, in the space and slightly enhancing them or shifting them. So people walk in the space in front of you and referring to that through through sound design and soundscape. And, and for you to question, uh, is this happening now? Is it not happening now? And for this to be peppered with sound design that uses different frequencies that you feel in your gut, you feel in your ear, you feel the pain in your ear, Uh, you feel it in your kind of the ankles, that sort of thing that really makes you present. And uh, obviously married with darkness, it kind of where where you go constantly in and out of uh, it, it's closing in on me. It's right there in front of me or I'm in a, this extremely vast space that is endless um, and infinite. That that is kind of the, the play that that work tried to do. This idea of being able to hear things in different parts of your body, like I can hear it in my gut, is a really, um, I think, exciting thing to think about. In reception studies, Kirsty Sedgman writes about this. One of the one of the integral, one of the first questions that they ask audiences is, "Where in your body did you feel it?" And I think that um, the work that I've been doing around ASMR has made me realise that when I hear sounds, it, this does not simply bounce off my skin in acoustic waves. This does not simply get fed in through my ears via headphones. This is something which I feel all over my body and within. 
my body also. So there are sounds that I can feel in my gut. There are sounds that I can feel, um, you know, under my arms or, you know, down my back or inside parts of my body that I don't necessarily, you know, um, have a name for. And it's because we don't really know what's inside, what's inside our bodies. So there are the visceral responses to sound are um, something which is poorly understood. And I think probably has to do with this business in a sensory anthropology way of the nervous system being all over our bodies. It's not just in the brain and the rational ways of understanding information are very, very limited. Um, the sensory is something which brings a, a huge amount of our experience in, and information and indeed knowledge is composed of significantly more than the verbal, textual and easy to articulate things which those types of ways of notating and documenting and knowing things bring. And I remember teaching drama in the UK in practice and there was always this moment when one of the first or second years in their devising classes said, oh, at that, that point we will do this and play that sound and that will make the audience really uncomfortable and that's going to be so much fun. And I was said, no, it's not you being cruel to them. Why are you, why are you thinking of that? But what I'm, what, what I'm getting at is sound has a, a potential to be quite manipulative in the sense it could really, you know, as you said, make people listen, make them feel comfortable, uncomfortable. You've talked about pleasure, Joey Rose, and it, there, there are, it's, it's, uh, it's quite a suggestive tool potentially, or quite a suggestive, uh, thing to experience. And I was wondering in your work, how the, the relationship between sort of something unconsciously happening, unconsciously being exposed and, and guided and perhaps even, uh, put in a particular situation and, how that sits with making people quite conscious about it, sort of referring them back to them, to, to what they're experiencing, or as in, you know, the, the, the kind of T.T. Mitchell Foley where it's presented in front of you. So I, I can both accept the sound as real and cinematic and filmic, but I can also look at it as almost Brechtian and theatrical and, and demonstrably produced. Does that make sense? So the, the manipulative versus the reflective, is that a tension you work with or, or do you lean either way or? I think about the ethics of sound design. And I think that that's a conversation which needs to be taken a lot further, particularly because there is such a tendency among sound designers, particularly young sound designers to go, let's go big. Um, and I think that there's an underestimate of how powerful sound is because actually um that when we are we are already living in a very rich sound world and so this additive style of sound this idea where you kind of pile sound on to produce effects is deeply it is manipulation it is a sensory form of manipulation um and you know i think behavioral economists um um dice in it at their peril because um what one thing that has come out through internet cultures is that there are vast communities of people who live with um, responses to sound which are acute. ASMR is one example of that. Um, and the evil twin of ASMR is misophonia, which is hatred of sounds. Now, the very curious thing about misophonia is that it is a response to exactly the same sounds as ASMR. And at the very early stages of scientific research of, on these phenomena, 
multisensory phenomena has shown that people who get misophonia are, are very likely also to experience ASMR. I also last week was at um, a Foley Poetics and Politics conference and discovered that no fewer than half the people in the room had misophonia. They have an incredibly strong response to sound. And these are people that theorize horror movies. These are people that theorize um, animal um, documentaries, sound. There's something around sound which can give us responses which are are terrifying to us, which give us very, very, very negative responses. And I don't understand why we're more interested in those than we are in the positive responses. I also don't understand. Well, no, I do understand. <laughs> and that's kind of where I'm situating my practice is in understanding how a safe situation could turn something which could be very squeamish, unpleasant and powerfully repulsive into something which is pleasurable, consensual and positive. So given that it's the same sound, the biggest ASMR um, artist in the world is Sass ASMR. And she runs uh, a video where she does eating videos and she eats food on camera. And eating sounds are therefore a huge ASMR trigger. She's got 20 million subscribers. I mean, this is way bigger than most the reach of most theater shows, right? But then we also have um, the fact that mouth sounds, I just did one then, um, and eating sounds in particular is the biggest misophonia trigger. There, particularly the sounds of people's parents eating is the, something that strikes horror into their hearts. And it's literally like, I can't be in the same room as you. And misophonia can be so profoundly debilitating that you can't sleep in the same room as somebody else because the sound of their breathing at night keeps you awake. It's it's this there's health and well-being implications here. So I'm very conscious that purposely scaring people isn't particularly ethical. <laughs> if you've signed up to go to a horror movie, that's one thing. And acoustic disgust and misophonia, Lisa Coulthard spoke about this a little bit in um, in film studies, but it's still very poorly understood because misophonia could be triggered by any sound potentially depending on your personal experiences, it's extremely subjective. But how, how do you navigate that in your work? Because I mean, you work with, with such sounds, you work with the close-upness of sounds, with the, the intimacy, uh, I, I, not knowing precisely what will trigger someone or what will sort of um, uh, put someone off balance. How, how do you navigate that? Do you work a lot with disclaimers? Do you explain what's going to happen in the show or how do you... Navigate that. Kind no, of. <laughs> I think that trigger warnings are something which um, never cover enough and which can't dispel the thing that they're trying to dispel in some way. So I think that they're worth having. Absolutely. But I'm, I'm very aware that if I turn the television on, I might see something I don't want to see. And so I'm, I think that this is where streaming is very good because we can control what we watch much better, you know. Um, adverts give me misophonia <laughs> you know I know what I don't want to have in my life what's going to send me absolutely rabid with uh, anger and repulsion you know we all have we all have our different our mores and our, our triggers and the things that that make us feel good and the thing makes things that make us feel really terrible so there are many tools within sound which enable us to um, cope with the potential for sound to be terrible. Volume is obviously a huge one. Bombarding people with endless 
loud sound. It's a big complaint in cinema now. It's, it's everything's too loud. And in theatres as well. Yeah, and you yeah. know, I, ca I can't believe that, that we're held to a higher standard as, the, as theatrical sound designers. We're held to a higher standard than the people that design public transport. Have you been on the central line? Like the scream of the trains. It's, it's the decibel levels are harmful. Like, I think we don't ca take care of our hearing well enough. So there's volume. There's also EQ, like there are ways in which you can kind of mold frequencies in ways which can can make them onsets less sudden. Um, obviously, that's partly a, a modulation of volume thing. But there are all kinds of different ways that you can automate sounds to make sure that if it's a sudden onset, that that's something which has been done not knowingly. You can be shocked in many small moments and create an atmosphere of discomfort and, uh, and unpleasantness. So as sound designers, we, we're constantly navigating that. But there is also, and this is the most important thing, is the dramaturgy of the sound and thinking of sound scenographically. So how can you create a situation where people know what to expect and you fulfill those expectations in ways which um, feel right? So if you say to someone, this is a piece in which someone's going to handle objects <laughs> and that's all that's going to happen, then that's pretty easy. Or if you say to someone, this is going to be a process, you're going to watch someone sew on a bead, right? Like, and seeing that thing from start to end has its own satisfactions. Um, and there might be all kinds of stuff going on around that, which you might tune out. Um, but also telling people, but the, the, the idea around dead and dry sound, the idea that you'll be able, you, that we'll do all the tuning out of the world for you so that you don't have to, I think that that's really dangerous. I think that we do have to become a lot more sophisticated in understanding how we can have agency over what we listen to and what we don't. And one thing I'm writing about in my thesis is theatrical misophonia, which is that, that actually a space where these terribly strong and negative responses to sound take place is in theatre audiences. The crinkling of the sweet wrapper, the rustling of um, someone's clothing, the whispering. Um, and it's to do with control and consent. When we turn up to an experience, we have consented to be to, at a given place and to have a given experience. And when something happens which goes outside of that, for example, we're in a noisy audience with people that are talking at the same time, the problem is not those people talking. The problem is the violation of that boundary of consent. So I think that there are consent frameworks around theatre sound and theatrical misophonia, um, which we need to take into account and which we need to properly theorise, actually. But I think the interesting thing about, about a lot of ASMR stuff and misophonia is that it's not really clear what the trigger is. And I think a lot of people, as they experiment with ASMR, find that they have different triggers that work for them and others that are not and the there's a bit of a blurry line between asmr and misophonia that i think i i definitely feel i think stationary works really well for me for asmr but again eating and mouth sounds i i can't stand i love i love mouth sounds <laughs> the, the weirdness of it i think is really important and and this idea that there is a kind of an okay, like an acceptable, a socially acceptable sound and a socially unacceptable sound is really exciting. And it's to do with privacy and public. And this was, this is, again, was part of the, of, to relate this back to, to um, Safe Word and to put, a, to put that a bit in, in context, say that there's, there was something that utilized that productive space of uncertainty and unease that is not just shock for shock 
sake or let, let's just sort the audience but actually where can noise be pleasurable and where can uneasiness and and discomfort actually be okay because uh, because there's something thrilling and enticing about that and where is the the boundary between eroticism and tra- transgression and all of that again all of that within the context of darkness that we are not seen by other people what does it allow us to do when we are sort of liberated by other audiences gaze there's something about the need for control that we get really what Julie Rose said about the breaking of the contract of consent in theater with the, with the street rapper and and people talking it's also with people taking out their phones or their watches that really bright the area around them but there's also something about again us trying to to control and fix certain things about the experience as if it's somewhat pristine and actually there's something about the openness and unfixity that is really interesting i think uh, thinking about light and sound in particular a lot of the time the discourse around them was they are great when they don't draw attention to themselves particularly about about lighting design lighting design is good when you when you don't notice it and i think now there's a reclaiming of uh, of that in terms of we are using it as an artistic medium that we that we can work with it and i think you can identify some of that in sound as a we the sound is doing certain things that you don't even know that it's doing so you don't even notice to it as opposed to gig theater that is right there utilized purposefully and i think in sound there's there's an interesting push pull around that of how much are we aware of that is being done to us or inflicted on us or that we are complicit to when we listen to to certain things i think that's the exci- the exciting thing is the the opportunity to uh, to discover that together as part of a collective experience yeah and the po- the poetics of clean dry dead sound are very much over i think i think we're starting in the age of noise reduction software we're getting to the point where there's no point having a studio anymore you'll be able to do all of that in the box and so suddenly, what do we do? We, when, now, once you've, once you've cleansed, and I say that word in a, in a way which I find it's very problematic. Once you've got rid of all of the dirt, all of the noise, all of the real stuff, including the glitches on the line, once you've got rid of all that, what are you left with? Is it worth having? But when you start to, and this is where glitch feminism is brilliant. When you think about the productivities of the generative nature of those things, which seem to be in excess or byproducts of the thing that you really wanted that's when you actually start to listen with and be with the world and this is donna haraway's um cyborg feminism and the the symbiosis that she described in in her theorization of of companion species and, and the world of animals actually and so we start to realize that there's an ecological quality to listening with rather than in this exclusionary, very hierarchical style of listening, which says there's only one right way to do things, and it sounds like this, and it's the BBC in 1940. <laughs> very good. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, and it, it, it chimes with something that uh, also Ross Brown has, um, you know, said a few years ago with his notion of theatre noise, and that the theatre is always a noisy environment, and uh while we while we have tried to isolate it from the outside world as much as we can particularly in a city like london each theater will will have remnants of car noises and planes and 
honkings and ambulances passing by or whatever trickling slightly through the trickling uh, through the walls and it'll be there and then there'll be noises inside the theater of light lighting systems in particular going on and off and and and, and there is the audience and, and and i think finding a productive way to embrace that rather than pretending we can exclude it completely and uh, is, is is a is an interesting thought but I, I just wanted to reiterate the point that you both made in, a, in an interesting way that sound is always situated that it's always framed in a particular way both socially i thought that was a really important point as well that how we perceive a sound what we make of a sound has a lot to do with the situation we find ourselves in is it permissible is it can, can i take pleasure in it should i not take pleasure in it um is it stressing me out all that is huge to do with the with the social situation i find myself in but also how it is framed in relation to a narrative a body uh, a space etc etc um which which makes a lot of difference can I ask in both of your cases, because we've talked a lot about sort of theatrical situations and materials and performances, do you feel in, in your work, does narrative in a sort of a conventional, good old fashioned narrative uh, style take place at all? Is it more sort of hinted at or are there no characters, narrative stories being told? Is it more really about situation? Uh, experience, etc., or do those two go together hand in hand in, in, in your your work? Well, I suppose there is a narrative. There's not a story. Right. That's, the, that's mm -hmm. usually the the because I think in the in the in the dramaturgy of sound and how it is arranged or how text, sound, voice uh, are coming together, it, the, they generate meaning through repetition, through return, through uh, surprise through diversion the work that you mentioned certain ways that i've done um as part of at the end of as part of my practice research phd uh was a guided tour by synthetic robotic voices that are juxtaposed to very natural sound and ambience music so it was a collaboration with james edward armstrong who does a lot of drone and ambient music and i think there was definitely text written. There was definitely an attempt to convey characters, but there was not necessarily a beginning, middle and end. It was kind of always a, a, a clash between natural, artificial boundaries of human and non-human and how, again, how much of natural environments we think through different codes of this is underwater or this is this is a campfire or this is the woods or this is it's windy now. When in fact you use kind of the sound of I don't know roasted aubergine to evoke something that is a, a volcano or something that is not as not as close as you'd as you'd imagine. So there was definitely a a narrative in terms of that that journey of that experience of of where you are. It had some questions in relation to darkness of again what happens when we uh, when we have unreliable guides and we can't really picture something because all of the input that is giving to us is constantly contradictory and set up something that is then falling apart immediately, partly because of the sound and partly because of what they say. And there was also an attempt to evoke empathy to something that is a monotonous voice of when do we stop hearing the monotony and start to find flavor in it in a way that conveys character. And in terms of the design of these voices and the experimentation with them, how can you make them shout without raising their voice where do you find that they take a breath in a glitch in their in the recording of the initial the initial voice actor that sat in the studio 
so they the, it's all there and it becomes part of the narrative but it's not i, I suppose it's not really a, a story and the same thing was was safe where there was kind of an overarching sense of of a few characters but it had a lot more episodes in it that complemented one another and contrasted what came before sort of dramaturgically just as a way to explore a wider palette of sensations and experiences i would agree with yaron that narrative is emergent in a very unruly way <laughs> and maybe i'd like to explain the way that narrative emerged in one piece which i sound designed which was the dance film feeling thing which was directed by joe bannon and um, with kanduko dance company and um, Kanduko are a disability inclusive dance company and Joe Bannon is a visually impaired director and, and live artist. And I was invited to do the sound design because of my ASMR um, videos and the skill set that I used there. And I used a much more significant post-production toolkit. It wasn't just about native audio. I also did a lot of Foley. I also did a lot of work with the mix in order to kind of experiment with like what this might feel like to be to be in these spaces and to be having these experiences. But the situation in the film was of three duets with three dancers um, in one house in separate rooms. The duet is between dancer and object. So we had in the kitchen, um, a dancer with a stepladder, in the bedroom, a dancer with a large whirring fan, and in the living room, a dancer with a vacuum cleaner, an upright vacuum cleaner. So it's very much the domestic and it was very much the COVID times where the idea of living in the same house as somebody, but not necessarily being able to be co-present with them. Um, but sound was what enabled us to create contact and co-presence without touch. So for example, you could hear when they turned the fan on upstairs. So the way that narrative emerged through this very unusual setup was very much through the sound. Firstly, because the relationship of the performer with their object, the duet, was felt through the sounds which were all very very heightened so you know the sound of a dancer on the bed the sound, and i contact mic the floor and i contact mic the object and we did different takes and then in when it came out it was all incredibly tactile close and very much from the point of audition being the per the dancer but then when the dancer put the fan on the floor and flipped it on and we went through the floor in terms of the video and we but it was only we didn't have that kind of technology where you have the doll's house passed down <laughs> and you see the kind of different floors of the building in one smooth shot it wasn't that kind of a film um but it was that we saw ends of the bedroom and we heard the fan in all of its kind of presence and its vibration and I captured that sound using a microphone, um, like this one, a condenser microphone and a contact microphone. So it wasn't just sound as you would hear it through the air. It's sound as it would literally vibrate the building, the container of the sound. And then the next image you saw was a hand on a ceiling. So that's a kind of different orientation of a hand. And also um, the quality of the sound changed. So you were no longer hearing sound through the air. 
you were kind of that that warm hum which had felt spread when she turned the hat fan on remained but the volume and the quality of the sound was dramatically different so we have different experiences of the same sound and we have sounds which refer movements and experiences from other spaces and bodies um into the, the one that one is currently in so the experience of having of living with others of being a neighbour, of knowing someone's up to something in a different space next to yours, not really knowing what that is, and maybe being interested, and in it not, but maybe it not really mattering as well. So the theme of the film was not to talk about characters who had plot arcs involving, you know, maybe a love affair, <laughs> but there was a, hu- a hugely erotic quality to the film. Nonetheless, it might be one that was imparted to you by other means than the literal storytelling of a Montagues and Capulets style conflict. It was much more on the level of um, the senses. Hmm. And that's where the kind of disability inclusion angle became um, really productive, but where ASMR started to do something different because this was... Um, this was talking about relationships with spaces and with objects and with people in ways which we don't usually speak about. So I guess you're right, David, to ask us, yeah, but do you do any normal stories? <laughs> and the answer is sure, but from a very, very different point of audition. And mm. um, it's not necessary. There were plenty of other people doing those stories in those ways. But what if you understood those stories from a complete, a much, a much different um, position and mm. a, way, a way of experiencing them? It's not that they're not there. They're always there. But perhaps they are felt and emergent rather than explicit or graphic mm. or spelled out. Great. Yeah. I had to think of Rear Window, the Hitchcock film, which is sort of a, yeah, a visual film, equivalent. Yeah. It is a great film and it's, it's sort of a visual equivalent, you know, and you also have the close up of the camera as the t- technology to zoom in on things and bring them close. And obviously, as you described, certain microphones bring in sound almost, uh, unnaturally close. It's almost really like being right next to the wall or the lips or the brush or the cloth or whatever it might be in a way that we are not experiencing it in a, in a day-to-day on a day-to-day basis because you can also amplify the the result etc which leads me to, to a question I, I i did want to not forget asking you which is to do with the role of technology really uh we have sort of you've, you've mentioned a few bits of tech that you use but um how has that perhaps changed what what technology is particularly important in in your work and how do you use it because i know that there's a very conscious engagement with particular pieces of kit, but also how you use them, what you do with them, how much does the computer and the software do, how much is sort of a more physical, you know, positioning or, you know, of, of, of microphones or particular instruments or particular you know, devices that you may or may not use. Uh, what role does it play in your work? How do you navigate with it? You know, um, I personally you know, have a preferred it. setup. I have, a yeah. pref- I have preferences around the equipment I use and they do what I want them to do really, really well. And I rely mm-hmm. on them as scenographies in themselves. Mm-hmm. And I often figure the equipment within the work. Like I have the, the microphones in shot if I'm making a video or I am in a, in a, in a performance. I'm starting a loop now. I'm finishing the loop now. You heard that I'm adding a new layer in the, in the sounds mm-hmm. now. And so it becomes part of the aesthetic of the work. Mm-hmm. 
and becomes part of this um, idea of agency um, and the more than representational quality of what's going on in terms of sound. I think it's very easy to get seduced by kit and, and think it can do really exciting things like, but actually the ideas that sit behind um, work are, are helped, are brought into, are materialized by equipment and technology, but they are relationships. I don't think that you can kind of be a dilettante, like in people who are really deep in practice and tech practice have such a, an infrastructure of reliable um, equipment. So I, I think that that's really important to emphasize actually is how reliability is the key feature. <laughs> mm. As we've um, experienced in this interview. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, yeah. But also like being able to feature the, um, the, the glitches. We've spoken about glitches mm. a lot in terms of their aesthetics um, yeah. and, and in performer performance failure performer a new failure a new a new portmanteau word of performance and failure perform yeah <laughs> it, it, failure is always at risk the risk in performance when something goes wrong when something is forgotten when something is dropped when something isn't there when it has to be hmm. and that is something which takes place all the time in our relationships with technology and so we use them as prostheses we use them as extensions of our bodies and as ways of being in spaces virtually and beyond the, our capacities um, in normal life and we take them for granted as soon as as soon as they work <laughs> i think there's a lot further to go i think ambisonic sound is something which is still we still have non-ubiquitous amplification setups in theatres. We still have no idea what equipment we're going to get when we go in. We have no idea what's going to be working because what we really need is people in those buildings who know those equipments really well. Technology is a relationship. I think that's what I would say. Technology right. mm -hmm. is a relationship. Absolutely, yeah. I have so well, I, I think what I'll add is probably le le less sophisticated as articulated, but I think where it comes to technology, I think it's not fully low tech or analog, but I think a key thing is where it feeds into the dramaturgy. So I think I try to stay away in my work from using headphones, for example, where there's already something close to your ear. And e even though things might creep in, uh, the sound is fairly controlled or at least gives the illusion that everything is entirely designed Everything that you're listening to is entirely meant for you to hear. And using speakers instead actually opens up to a kind of a wider uh, soundscape of togetherness because it includes all these unplanned sounds that might feed into the space. It might be the person shouting from outside the space, might be the cars, as you said. Um, all of these become really productive elements uh, into dramaturgy, especially if uncertainty and kind of questioning your experience becomes part of what we're exploring here very good maybe a final question and a bit which is to do with an analogy i sometimes use and i'm not even sure how how well it functions which is to do that if we talk about rock bands or pop bands they have a sound you know we could, we could say that this is a k-pop sound or this is the beatles sound with its very unique stereo and the unique voices and the ways of recording and there's a i don't know uh a Beyonce sound or whatever it might be. And they have to do, or a Motown sound to, for, for our older listeners, you know, there's a, a Motown sound where, which we can identify and it's a tuned bass drum. It's, it's, you know, and it's a, this and that and the other end is particularly instruments, but also it's to do with how they are played and how they are recorded, et cetera, et cetera. 
I find that a lot harder to to define in terms of performance or theatre or film, etc. But still, I would argue that, mm, particularly in those instances where those performances are quite sound conscious, where it's not just an added thing to cover to cover a transition or something, that people do think about that, and that also sound designers or mus- musicians and composers develop a style, let's call it, or a, or a sound. And as you said, Julie Rose, with, that is to do with the dialogue with technology and particular things that you use or don't use. Um, but it's also, I don't know, a, 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 to do with taste and with selection and with, yeah. Is that something you're very conscious of? Would you, would you say, you know, um, this is my sound and this is sort of what people who book me or who, who come to see my work will expect and will know, oh, this is going to be that? Or are you sort of sonic chameleons and and try to sort of sound different every every time you do something? I think there's definitely a sensibility to what I do, which would be pre- predictable. Um, I think people would know what they were going to get in terms of the the style of experience and what kind of an, an audience offer I like to make in my work. I've spoken about agency and I've spoken about proximity and i've spoken about um safety and consent um these are all considerations which i have but um i really love experimental music i really 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 love um novelty surprise and the innovative musical instruments and and the exploration of sound for sound's own sake but I recognise that most people don't like that. Most people are um, much more um, contained in what their expectations of the sounds are and what their preferences are within sound. Um, so for, for my own part, um, I don't expect my tastes to map onto my audience's tastes. And for myself, I don't care <laughs> what something sounds like because I understand how sound's made and I don't, I think professionalized sound has huge problems and often it's just, it all sounds the same. Mm-hmm. I, I really like the very variegations, the variations, the differences and the way in which people can foreground why something sounds the way that it sounds like it's the, the, the politics of the aesthetics of the sound are what interests me. So I don't actually care what it sounds like. I care about the the sensibility of mm. what's being presented and whether it's been um foregrounded and framed in a way which m- makes it possible to enjoy it which is why as yaron said live performance will never die because the idea of seeing something appear ex nihilo before our eyes and not knowing what's going to happen but kind of um having some clear place within it like there has been a space made for others to um, share this thing um those those are the important things for me but i love i love really really glitchy diy terribly produced in inverted commas music which you can't hear on your car stereo because it's just so completely and all the same types of frequencies together there are different ways of listening to different things Mm. i don't expect everything to sound the same on every different device like I'm very engaged with those those things, and I, I really respect what Aaron said about I prefer not to have headphones. Well, good for you. I don't think everything should be on headphones, but I'm not against headphones. But what headphones? <laughs> um, 
expensive yeah, ones, please. But that's not yes. always possible. So not um, against headphones. I should put that no. out there. Not against we, headphones. I just <laughs> we have to make do. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but I, I think what you said, Yara, is, is also to do with does the does the dramaturgy of the piece really require them? Is it just a, a device, uh, you know, which which suggests a certain amount of control, a certain amount of exclusivity, et cetera, et cetera? Does is it just a, a tool, or or does it actually tell something? Is it actually really something um, that is integral to the particular experience or the particular, uh, as you said, Julie Rose, the emergent narrative of that particular piece? And and you know, and quite often it, it may not be. Yeah. Do you have a sound, Yaron? Is that uh, I, I like the differentiation uh, that that we just heard about? No, there's no sound, but there's a sensibility, which which makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I I'll probably use the word that you you used uh, earlier, and that was flavoring. So I, mm. I think there's some flavoring to the work in terms of what it might try to do dramaturgically. But I think I try to work with different sound designers exactly to kind of find new sounds in the work and allow that to shift the piece or expand what it might be able to do so it would probably be have it will probably have a, a, a flavor in terms of how i approach things dramaturgically and how i like to put things together but i don't think it would or i hope that it doesn't sound the same yeah there's there's a fine line between a personal style and a sort of um and a trademark and something that just seems to be repetitive and someone, you know, repeating the same kind of work. There's a, yeah. yeah. And I suppose I also acknowledge the fact that I've worked, so fine foul is a collab is a collaborative work. And then there's work that I, that I do alongside that. And I think that is also where I have the opportunity to play with different sonic sensibilities and then make some work in response to the work that is fine foul. I think fine foul had, we, we've started to have that sort of, sound and i think when we develop another project it, it we 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 played something and it was said oh that's a classic sound that we tend to use and i think that was also a sound for a sign for us that we should rethink what what it is that we're trying to do in this particular instance yeah and then i think i've started to make other work in response to that as well so if that is something that explores tr transgression how can i explore conviviality and togetherness or empathy or lovey-dovey fuzzy stuff <laughs> actually i will ask a final final question if i may because i just thought of it and uh, i'm really interested because you're both you both also teach uh julia rose just came from a workshop you said and you've also taught in in, in various contexts and uh, yaren you do as well how does can you translate this this work with sound into into the into the studio into the classroom into the teaching are there particular principles that you use how do you uh is is that teachable or how do you how do you how do you work with that i suppose it's interesting to unpack certain biases so i teach on modules that are scenography and design more broadly and that's when you realize that people are really excited by sound but are not really familiar with what it can do and how it's been utilized in performance so there's very much a set lighting um bias uh, and so just opening up certain possibilities of sound and and thinking about again sound and space sound as, and noise sound music voice uh body and perception uh all of that is really i, I think something that students find really exciting because it's something that they're very immersed in and it's part of their 
daily life and something that preoccupies them, but they have yet to have the opportunity to experiment with that in practice. Yes, students are very media agnostic, so they're fully aware of how ubiquitous technology is and how easily they can access the the world, the world of the online, and just through their phones and through their laptops and so on. So sometimes it's really exciting to discover how quickly um, students can pick these tools up and understand that sounds are things that you find. And then you just have to work out how to kind of like root them in. And it's about cueing. It's about materiality. It's about um, creating an aesthetic, but it can be done very quickly. So I think that's something that students find really exciting about about sound is when you demystify the kit aspects of it mm. and realize that, you know, just a mobile phone is an amazing sound design tool. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'll have one set of um, students doing beautifully, like exquisitely executed sound effects. And then someone just holds up their phone to the microphone to put a little bit of, you know, that they wanted the sound of running water. And we aren't, we haven't got running water in the classroom, but they found something online and they put it through. And I'm just like, yes, this, that's the spirit. You know, you have to, I think that agnostic quality around technology, like students not being troubled by their not being, by combining different ways of making and understanding that design comes in many forms and is not categorized by modality mm. like people architects design sound you know um costume um designers um design sound like one, one of my formative um experiences that made me want to be in theater was sitting in the front row of um, a promenade, well, the promenade, it was a strut stage. So like the apron of the stage was coming out and it was um, A Month in the Country by Turgenev at the Swan Theatre in Stratford. I was at school and an actress in a full length gown came and walked past me and her skirt swished across my knees. And it was the sound of the skirt, which completely sent me, you know? So I think that makers of all kinds are starting to understand that sound is a part of what they do already. And there are ways which you can augment that, amplify that, design with that and understand it as um, a really strong offering within what you do. And it's super and it's super accessible because it's already there. <laughs> it's already there. Everything has sound. So it's, it is teachable, but I think that part of it is switching on this I, the idea of it for students and mm. understanding that it's something that there is a lot of material for them to work with if they want to. What I hear is also the, the notion that it's not always about um, a, a sort of a very prescriptive sense of craft. You know, this is what how you do sound. This is how you do it properly. This is the kind of equipment and you use and you have to use it this way. Because I think that's how... Theatre crafts have been taught a long time. This is how you properly light a show. This is how you properly design. You know, and that 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 sense of DIY and that sense of the slightly guerrilla tactics of you know I'll just, let's just get out there and 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 record sounds. And we all have pretty sophisticated sh machines in our pocket that can do a lot of uh, of work already. And the, the the questioning of what sounds good is not necessarily what someone will call professionally made or something but it may be good because it's bad or because it's cheap or because it's glitchy or you know what i mean so it's, it's sort of uh, that and can what's have good an enough effect. we talked about, yeah, about yeah. we talked about good good enough 
But here we go, like a huge amount of what we see broadcast. I mean, seeing now on the news, people with their laptop sound, and that's completely normal. And you yeah. know what? It's good enough. It's just that like when when we when you're pushed and you need to make something happen, the important thing is that you hear from that person at that moment. Having the same quality of sound is not the most important thing. And understanding why it sounds like that is part of the information. So I, I think... It, you can you can get brilliant microphones that plug into your phone if you wanted to have an even better one than the perfectly good one that's in your phone. And <laughs> um, and bedroom most very few sound designers have professional studios. Most people are operating out of their homes or out of warehouse style spaces like I am in right now. And so I, I and this is openly acknowledged when you read audio equipment websites and so on. They they really understand that like the vast majority of people. Are, who are buying professional equipment are not buying it to use in a studio. They're, they're using it in other contexts because that's actually where sound design is taking place in all kinds of, in all kinds of exciting um, spaces. And, you know, once you've, once you've designed some sounds, all you have to do is call it a custom sound library and voila, professionalization voila. arrives. You can name what you do. We should probably call it the grain of the sound with Roland Barthes, you know, so the, <laughs> the graininess of, uh, of, 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 of a sound's history and a sound's place and a sound's sort of biography. Fantastic. I think we should, uh, we should wrap up, uh, and, and, uh, call it a day, but thank you so much for your insights and your, your willingness to share, you know, a, a lot of interesting thoughts on your, your work on sound in general and the kind of connections between theatrical and and real and virtual spaces and and sonic uh, work that's been really fascinating thank you so much and uh we'll uh hear each other again i hope in a future episode of this podcast stay tuned as they say thank <laughs> okay. you thank you thanks for having us thank you thank you <laughs>